All right. Well, everyone, welcome back to Mike's podcast. It is good to have you on and with us today. And I've got a couple of friends with me here today. Um, Lindsay and Susan Flaming Yates are with us. Um, can you guys say hi? Hi, Mike. Hi, Mike. hi everybody. It is so fun to have you both with us. And I want to give people just a little bit of um, backstory before we before we get into what we want to talk about, um, I got to meet you each like in different ways over the years through different like ministry contexts. And, um, and then over the past like year, year and a half, um, Allison and I, and the two of you have developed, I think a sweet friendship. I've enjoyed getting to know you both and, and hanging out, uh, together with you. And, um, and you become some of our really fun married friends who we like to, to hang out with. So, I appreciate you. And we were, um, we were having breakfast a few weeks ago, maybe even like a week ago. And, um, and one of the things that Susan, that you had said is you talked about, um, the idea of LGBTQ Christians being gifts to the church. And you said like a lot of times the conversation is about tolerating or is about accepting and, um, but we're actually gifts to the church. And so I should, I should back up, um, just a little bit before that to say that you guys are both married to each other. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you're also, you're also committed Christians. You're, yeah. I found you to be incredibly thoughtful of how you approach the scriptures. You both have served in leadership in the church and in other Christian organizations. Um, so you would, would, would the right way to like talk about you, would it be to say that you're queer Christians? Would that be an appropriate? Yes. Yes. So um, I would love to, before we get into sort of like unpacking that sort of statement, that's sort of what led us to like me saying like, hey, jump on with me. And I would love for us to talk about that because I think people would love to hear about what does it mean to see queer Christians as a gift to the church? Um, I, I would love to back up a little bit and hear a little bit about your guys' story because you both grew up, I think, in fairly conservative-ish corners of the church and would love to hear a bit about like how that affected how your faith and sexuality, how like how you sort of wrestled through that, where that sort of like you began to come to grips with that. What did that sort of look like for you? So mm-hmm. I don't know which one of you wants to sure. start. So but Sure. Yeah. Thanks again, Mike, for having us. We um, it's fun to talk about our story. It's fun to talk about, um, like you said, sort of moving beyond some of the some of the debate, especially as we've been married a few years. So we're, we're really glad to be with you. Um, so I was born and raised in Southern California. I grew up one of seven kids in a very conservative brethren church that I would describe as a fundamentalist. And there was quite a bit of rigidity and sort of a, a particular way of being in the world that I internalized and I grew up really holding on to. And when I think back to my story, I have specific memories as early as 15 years old of being attracted to women and growing up in this church context, there was just no where to put that. There was no language for it. There was no framework for what this means. Um, I had a, I have a memory of somebody saying when I was in youth group that the two worst sins you could commit could commit were having an abortion and being gay. And so I internalized sort of this idea of uh, being gay was one of the worst things you could do as a Christian. And so I explained away this attraction that I felt when I was 
a young teenager as many other things. And as time went on, I started to realize that it wasn't um, just intensity or codependency or these other things that I had labeled it as, but it was really attraction to women. And then that ushered in like a really significant self-loathing, anxiety, depression, isolation, uh, because there was nowhere to put it. And there was just this sense of either I tuck this away and I hide it or I try to get rid of it. And this is while you're a high schooler? Yeah, in my high school years specifically. And I would even say into my college years, either I sort of put this off to the side, deny it and maintain my faith, or I abandon my faith altogether and explore this part of me that is feeling increasingly um, true. And in you know, years of praying and have, having people lay hands on me and fasting and you name it to try to get rid of this, what I thought at the time was this really kind of sinful, disordered part of me. And so mm. there really were a couple of decades of really wrestling and and feeling isolated and depressed and um, desperate to try to figure out what to do about this. And I had grown up in Christian ministries all throughout high school and college. I attended Biola University. I was involved in Fellowship of Christian Athletes very heavily throughout my, my college years. And so there was always this sense of there was no way that I could bring this whole part of myself to these contexts. And so again, there was this sort of putting it off to the side. And as I was, um, you know, after my college years, uh, part of the issue for me was that I really longed for connection and relationship and intimacy. And so for me, there was this hiding and this sort of double life that I had developed where I had Mm. these romantic relationships with women that were hidden, that I didn't talk about, that I didn't bring into my larger life. And that created this really uncomfortable anxiety provoking split where I was, I had this sort of secret life and then I had my public kind of Christian life. So, and would you have said in like the Christian circles you were in, because you said people were praying for you and fasting and things like that, would you have used language like I struggle with same sex attraction Not then, not then. It wasn't, it didn't even feel safe enough to call it that. Okay. So I, I kind of danced around things and it's, it's interesting now looking back and talking with people who knew me then they had a sense, but none of us were willing to call it what it was. Hmm. And so, um, it was sort of this, you know, I'm single. I really long to be with somebody. And eventually, you know, in in my early late twenties, early thirties, I let a few people in explicitly that I was attracted to women and, and asked for their help with, with this struggle. At the time, I, I wasn't affirming, I wasn't out, and still saw it as something that I, I wanted to change. That was something that was wrong with me. So I think there was just this uh, really long, painful process <clears throat> of coming to grips with this being true of me. And eventually, this sort of split off life that I was living just became untenable and I I couldn't tolerate it anymore. I I started seeing a therapist and that ushered in just this new way of integrating parts of me. And around that time, I started to be exposed to different 
Christian thinkers who had looked at this conversation uh, differently than I had grown up with. Uh, people who were committed to a high view of scripture, who were um, what I would consider respectable conservative folks for the most part, who had started thinking differently about this issue. So that opened up a whole new world of, wow, there are gay Christians out there. And these aren't fringy people who are suspect in their theology. It felt like there was some real rigor and robustness to their to their arguments. So between those two things, being exposed to some, some thinkers that I respected and that really seemed to have some thoughtfulness around it uh, and sort of working through my own shame, those opened up uh, some things to start to really integrate this part of me between my faith and my sexuality. Okay. Thank, thanks for sharing that. Um, so I want to, I want to hear about you guys getting married, but before we do that, Lindsay, I'd love for you to share a little bit, like if you don't mind sharing a little bit about your own story about how you kind of ended up in a similar sort of place. Sure. Yeah. I think in some ways my story feels really different um, in terms of how I came to wrestle with my sexuality, but before that, to back up just a little bit, um, I too grew up in a, in a Christian home. My parents were both on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, uh, and, and I grew up internationally overseas uh, for the first, really now quarter, but um, for the first almost 10 years of my life. So in very sort of um, conservative environments that way, just on a, on a global scene sort of. And, and so I mean, honestly, I would say, and I was very much shaped by purity culture too through this whole mm-hmm. process. So my story is one of which um, I I was, I would say pretty disconnected from any sort of sexuality and, and from myself in that way at all. Um, and that was all guised under sort of, this is the holy way to do it. Like, so I think there was just a lot that, that was repressed under the guise of of spirituality. And, and I sort of was thankful that I wasn't always having the same crushes other people were having. And, and I remember sort of the first boy actually that I had a crush on. Um, and it, it it sort of came by way of one of my best friends having a crush on him. And I was like, Oh, I should do this too. Like that makes sense when I was like 10, you know? So I think there, there's just a long sort of history of, I got into, um, and in college, uh, well, in high school and college, I was I was just extremely focused on on basketball as an athlete, and sort of that's where my attention, and and also very involved in youth groups. Those were kind of my two things. But I ended up at a at a Christian school in Western Pennsylvania, and and got really involved in in actually Campus Crusade. Got started while I was there, and that sort of was a huge just formative experience spiritually, and really shaped sort of my trajectory even post college. I spent six years with Crusade um, on the West Coast, and so now Crew Global. Um, So within that, I think it wasn't until my really sort of my early 20s that and that I started to explore like I need to start dating like what is going on with me that like people don't seem interested and I sort of long for relationship but something's like not quite working here um and it was again kind of that area where people didn't totally ask and I didn't know how to figure out and and sort of um I think 
hit the point in my mid twenties where I was like, this just is not something's going on here and this isn't working. So I ended up in a, in a life coaching class with Dr. Henry Cloud and John Townsend, where you like meet with them once a month and you're supposed to pick a goal. And so the area of life I decided to focus on was my dating life. And, um, and really to like jumpstart dating. Um, and it was, super successful actually like <laughs> i read his book how to get a date worth keeping i got a group of friends we were like we're gonna do this to the letter of the law and see if it works because he promises a dating life in six months um and it did <laughs> like and so i i had sort of this great not great experience dating men but i really was i mean it was sort of this vibrant season of life of like taking a lot of vulnerable steps and going after it and it started to awaken things within me um and and surface a lot of sort of good healthy areas to grow even and i too had been in therapy at that point for a while which just feels important because my therapist was pretty huge as things were starting to surface and come up and mm. um within this. And, and I was doing this with a couple friends and I, I hit some points in the process where I found myself looking forward to coming back and debriefing with these girlfriends more than I was looking forward to going out on some of these dates. And there were, I would say, I'll call them red flags at this point, but some indicators along the way of like, something's not quite working here. Um, and yet it was really confusing because I was attracted to men and, you know, and enjoyed that um, as well. So, but it, it, over a period of, I would say a year, unbeknownst to me, and this is, I think, an, again, a picture of how disconnected from myself, I, I sort of was in this area, I developed feelings for a close girlfriend of mine. And um, in, a, in just a moment of sort of total surprise, some lines got crossed um, in, in sort of a one-time incident sexually. And that was this, I mean, I think it, I was shocked, frankly, yeah. and yet very much very much involved in, and very much a, a, you know, a player in that moment. But it was kind of my first moment of like, wait, what just happened? And how did I miss this? Like, what, what? And coupled with, because of my background and because of these contexts that I'd grown up in and been shaped by, just deep shame. Like this was the worst thing I could have ever done and we needed to, to fix it yesterday kind of was was my approach to that so um that sort of catalyzed really a four-year and I was 33 at this point so well not well into my 30s but into my 30s yeah, yeah. Um, and really just sort of was like I need to figure out one what's going on with me sort of internally and personally and how did I miss this and like what, what happened here and, and what are the things I've avoided along the way or sort of didn't have eyes to see coupled with like spiritually and theologically, what do I do with this? Like, what does this mean? And I, I think similar to what Susan just shared, I think at that point, and this, I'd love to give you a year here, like, gosh, it was 2013, 2000. Yeah, 2013. At that point, like people, queer Christians were starting to write, but like the conversation was moving um, in a more robust way also. And so as I started Googling things and trying to figure this out, there was there was a solid amount of sort of initial resources that were coming on the scene, which were really helpful. So long story long, um, <laughs> I, 
I, I mean, I started trying to watch coming out videos. I mean, I was trying to find my story in someone else's story and go, yeah, yeah. what do I do with this? I mean, I, I still feel attracted to men. What do I do with like, how did, what's like the complexity of what's going on here? I think was, was what I was trying to figure out. And I, I found myself um, about a year later at, at a, at that point, it was the Gay Christian Network Conference. Um, now it's QCF. But um, in a seminar on bisexuality, and mm. I sort of, I mean, I was terrified to be there. I, I was still very much dealing with a lot of shame. It was early on in my process. But um, the woman who was co-leading the seminar just essentially shared her story of growing up in purity culture, dating men, and then in her 30s, falling, unbeknownst to her, falling falling in love with a close friend. And it was the first moment where I was like, oh, this is what, and sort of wrestling with, is this true of me? Like, does this like label fit? And if so, what do I do with that? Um, and yeah, so I think that it took about four years to wrestle through not just the sexuality piece, but the, the theological piece and come to a place um, through just a lot of conversations, a lot of interactions, a lot of reading, a lot of study of scripture um, to go, yeah, I think, I think this is something um, that, that really is um, not something purely to be ashamed of, but something that I'm watching God use in my life in incredible ways and something that I think uh, God has a lot of space for and that there's so much more complexity um, even then I understand at times for sure, um, yeah. and feeling freed up. I think it was, um, October of like 2016. Um, yeah, October of 2016 that I really felt after all this kind of work and study freed up to potentially be in a relationship and marry a woman, which hmm. for my fan, I mean, my family had been in that all the way along. And that was, again, some of the worst news my parents thought they would ever kind of receive. Yeah, and that sort of sure. navigating, navigating that tension with family where they worked hard to sort of mm. stay connected and to love me well in, in the midst of not understanding so much of, of what we're yeah. sharing. And, and simultaneously where I wanted to be at a place where um, you may not we may never agree on this and how do we, how do we maintain just relationship in a, in a way that's really honoring to kind of all positions in, in this conversation. Um, and it was about a month after, it was about a month after making that decision, um, that I, that I met Susan. So mm. yeah. That's of. good. Um, well, I don't want to, I don't want to go too far down this cause I don't want to, I don't want to kind of derail us, but I would love to, for, for any folks that are listening that are kind of like hearing you talk about, like I wrestled through the scriptures. I heard good theologians, people who held the scriptures in high regard and they came to these other conclusions than what I had grown up with. Um, I don't, I don't feel like we want to go down that path of like kind of going through those arguments, but maybe like what are just a couple of resources that you could point people towards if there's anybody that's listening that's like, oh, I would like, who are saying those things? Where are those sorts of resources? Where could mm -hmm. I find that? Sure. Yeah, I think so. A couple of names that come to mind. Um, Megan DeFranza is a great thinker on this topic. She's got a couple of books out. David Gushy, who I know you've had on your podcast. Uh, Matthew Vines. 
Yeah. I I mean, I love Julie Rogers, who I think her story has been really powerful and helpful. And um, I think Danny Cortez honestly thinks really well about this also. Mm -hmm. Um, Julie doesn't have a book though, right? It would just be like, you can find videos of her talking. Yeah. And I think she's been in conservative settings and has really wrestled with that too. Mm -hmm. Um, I think uh, on the more traditional side, uh, Wesley Hill, I think is, is definitely worth reading and and following. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anyone else. Those are, those are kind of the main Extreme. No, that's a, I think that's a good start. Those are good places. I know. Um, yeah. Matt Vine's book on the gay Christian. Um, mm-hmm. Wesley Hill's book is uh, washed and waiting. Yeah. Um, uh, Gushy's book is why we changed our mind. Change your mind. Yep. And um, I don't know. Was it Megan? Is that him? Yeah. I think it's I Bible, gender and sexuality. I think is the name of her book. Uh, that's Brownson's book. Oh, that's Brownson. Brownson. And that's, yeah. if any of you are like Bible nerds and you just want to like Brownson's book is a um, scholarly level book, but it's, it's worth engaging in if you want to get into some of the, the weeds there a bit, particularly around Romans one. I think where DeFranza is great is she's done a lot of work around being intersex and okay. sort of that is- sex difference in Christian theology is her book. Sex difference. Okay, I haven't read that one. I'm going to put that it's, down. Yeah, good stuff. Um, no, that's really helpful. And even like as we um, as we kind of like push into this a little bit, I, I think I've heard us use three different phrases. So I think it's helpful for people like like me. Like as I began engaging with some of my queer Christian friends, and I was hearing like different letters being thrown out and different like ways of defining people. And I was like, I was constantly scared of saying the wrong thing and calling people the wrong thing. And like, I felt this intrepidation constantly as I was in conversation. So I've heard us use LGBTQ Christians. I've heard us use um, uh, gay Christian and queer Christian. Is there like, is there any reason to use one other than another? Is there um, any difference? Is there any preference? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's always your best bet to just ask the person you're speaking with what they prefer. Um, sure. There's a there's a lot of variation, and I think uh, we've we've heard many different labels that people prefer. I think for me, I I like the the term queer partly because it uh, it's an umbrella term and it sort of encapsulates that idea of. Um, this sort of like nuanced particular space that I think LGBTQ Christians inhabit. But I think it's, it's always just a good rule of thumb to defer to the person you're talking to. Yeah. I mean, for me, when I started, I think the queer term was hard because it's like, this is the thing we're not supposed to say. I sure. Right. It was negative for so long. Yeah. Generationally, right. it was a slur. Um, now it's really an umbrella term that that sort of encaptures anything that that's maybe not heteronormative or straight. So mm-hmm. um, I identify as bisexual um, with a lot of intentionality, honestly, Mike, because um, I think that in some ways fits uh, the fact that I'm attracted to both men and women in different ways, I think. And it, it gets at some of the nuance around, you know, there's sexual attraction and physical attraction, there's romantic attraction and, and being by um, doesn't imply 50, 50 percent. Sure. So there's ways in which I'm attracted to women that I'm not attracted to men and ways in which 
and vice versa. And, and sort of, so even though I'm married to a woman, I would still identify that way. Um, and that feels very important because I'm not attracted to only women, which would be the lesbian term. Um, and I'm definitely not straight, which would imply, um, sort of being attracted to men. So I think, and, and obviously, I mean, my, I agree with Susan. I think it's always, um, great to ask the person. And I think, uh, and this gets to sort of one of the gifts of, of queer people and queer Christians, but I think as, as we develop more and more understanding of sexuality and sexual orientation, I think it's obviously extremely complex. And so some of the language and the breadth of it and the fact that it's constantly changing can be super intimidating, but I think is also a great reflection of this is trying to put language to something that's really hard to put language mm. to. And yeah. so if people have different nuances in their experience, different, different words are coming up. Um, and, and for me, I think there's a lot of grace as people are trying. Um, I think that's what communicates the most. It's, it's when people are like, well, ABCD, I don't know. I don't know what to like that sure. sort of fragility, I think is what's more off-putting, but people that are generally like trying to be sensitive and trying to learn, I think there's, there's a lot of, a lot of grace and space for that. One, one thing I would add to that just briefly is that, you know, I think there can be, and I remember thinking this myself, can be a frustration with trying to figure out what is the right term and there's all these letters and it's evolving. And I think I would just encourage people as they consider interacting with and thinking through the LGBTQ Christian conversation and interacting with people is that there are ways that these labels are a lifeline for people and actually... Hmm categorize a very painful, complex experience. And that, that goes for me personally. When I started to hear about queer Christians and gay Christians and LGBTQ, it was like, oh, there was this deep sigh of relief that this is actually an, an experience beyond me. I'm not crazy. I'm not alone. And so I think thinking about it through that lens might be helpful from a sort of compassionate humanizing way that these labels embody an experience of people who have been marginalized. That's really, that's really, um, that's really helpful. It's really helpful because um, I know even for me in the past and even in some of the other conversations I'm in with different church leaders that it will like it, there's often this like LGBTQIA XYZ, like what are all the new letters? And to like think like, no, 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 like that, that letter is a helpful way. It represents something to somebody that they are struggling through, like that they are, have had some deep pain in mm -hmm. and, um, and that it means something to them. And just because it's confusing to you, um, sometimes like we've got to lay that stuff aside mm -hmm. in order to care about like the person who's on the other end of that. Right. That's I mean, I think it's, you're hitting the nail on the head. It's a great way to pursue knowing someone in a mm -hmm. much deeper way, like mm -hmm. practically just to ask and ask about the nuances and the story as much as, and I think being sensitive, obviously to those are very painful parts of people's stories. But I think to me, it communicates a lot of love when people want to understand sort of why I would choose to identify this way and what the story behind that is. Yeah. Well, so I would, I want to start pushing into some of the things that we wanted to talk about um, uh, that sort of like initially brought this up. And um, one of the things I was thinking just now, Susan, as you're talking about different people that you're interacting with is the reality is um, if you're in church, you are interacting with some queer Christians, most likely. Like right. 
there the people are in your church they're probably even some of them are leading worship in your church they might not be out but they're there they have been leading you they have been watching your kids and children's ministry you have been interacting with them in the pews um, they're a part of your community already, whether they are out or whether even if they're out in their personal life and they keep it closeted at church, like that's a part of the reality of the life of the church. And so one of the things that I keep thinking about since we had this conversation is so much of the conversation that I've been a part of in the church has been about um, tolerating and or accepting LGBTQ Christians in the church. And the framework of the language that you used with me the other day of seeing queer Christians as a gift to the church, like help, help me to understand like what's kind of the difference between those two sort of postures. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think having been uh, married for going on three years now, that's been a natural evolution for me and for us where I think we've had to move past fighting to be perceived as legitimate as a couple. So as mm -hmm. we're just maturing as a couple, we're starting to think about starting a family. There's just this sort of natural progression. And so I think for years it was this really kind of terrified posture of please just accept me. Please don't reject me. If I come out and I'm honest about my sexuality, can I please still be a part of this spiritual community, a part of this fellowship? And so there's this fear of rejection. And I think it's really hard to stay there because you're, we, we use kind of the term of sort of like eating scraps from the table, like just hoping to get, you know, little, little bits and pieces here rather than actually having a seat at the table and being, being perceived as legitimate. So I think just, it's been a natural evolution of, I, I feel uh, done with, fighting about the debate about whether it's okay for us to be married. And, and I think that is, it also fits with this idea of um, spiritually leaning into who we are and thinking through, no, actually, as I look at our marriage and I look at our life and our community, and I look at the two of us individually and as a couple, I think that our relationship and our marriage has been a gift both to us and to other people. And I think that's potentially true for other queer Christians. And so we've really started kind of leaning into this idea of there's something here that's actually powerful and beautiful that we should move from apologizing for and actually lean into and mm. be able to fully bring ourselves and contribute to the life of the church. I like that a lot. What does it feel like, as just thinking about this as you're sharing that there, what does it feel like to be having church boards, church leadership teams, even like larger like um, forums in the church that are all about you? Like what what is that sort of, because as a white man, like I haven't had that experience where people are genuinely, as a straight white man, I haven't had like church leadership boards having discussions behind closed doors about like, whether I can be involved in the church or not, what, like what my limitations are or not in the church. Like, what is that experience like on your end? Yeah, I think it's really mixed, Mike. I mean, given where we come from, we understand, like there's a level of like, yeah, we get it. This is like a super divisive topic. Um, and we've got thousands of years of tradition that have you know, led up to where we are today and sort of a robust conversation around this is necessary. 
I think that being said, what's painful often about it and, and sort of, I mean, as you ask this question, the memories that come up for me is um, when, right as, as we were starting to date, the church that I was going to in, in Long Beach was um, starting a conversation around LGBTQ Christians and inclusion in the church and sort of, and coming from a traditional place and sort of looking at what do, where do we go with this? Like, clearly there are queer people amongst us. Um, eventually they're going to want to lead. So what does that look like really I think oftentimes the question surrounds leadership um within churches and so I think um part of what's tricky in that is to your point it's the conversation about rather than with like Mm -hmm. it would be one thing if you invited me into the room and asked me to share my story and gave me I mean I think that's one level where you just hear from me and then you make the decision about me um it's another to go how do we bring you into this decision with us and wrestle with this in community and even that I think is is extremely complex because there's obviously traditional points and affirming points and sort of where your theology falls on that impacts your credibility in the room at any given moment or the conversation so it's definitely not black and white but I remember the first announcement so they had a special meeting at the church I was at to announce that we're embarking on this process and I remember walking into the sanctuary that day and I mean feeling so like you know how you walk into moments where you don't anticipate that they're going to be as vulnerable as they end up being and you just want to eat a tub of ice cream after you walk out of one? Like it was that kind of a moment where I'm like, and I found myself looking around the room and going, who here is queer? Like, who, like this person I know and this person I know and this person may or may not be, but we're not even having enough open and out conversations around this. And I'm sort of out. So people are, who's looking at me while this conversation is happening, how I'm feeling or holding it, who has no idea. Then they broke us into small groups and it was like an, Oh shit kind of moment. And I'm looking around for, I just kind of slinked into the back of the room, but now I'm trying to find my people because I have to talk about this. And like, so it's extremely vulnerable um, on a, on a molecular level. Um, And I, I think as we were in the process and then, with our church, we started dating and then got married and stayed with this church um, really for two years through a process um, that didn't end before we felt like we had to leave just because it was so painful and so much to sort of carry. And we were the first married couple, uh, Mm. married LGBTQ couple at this church. And so there's just, I think, an incredible amount of, um, pressure that that comes with that and um even in the best of circumstances it's still very painful yeah i can't imagine um i do want to point out you just made my podcast explicit for the first time i have to to get that label now thanks not in the way we expected but we'll take it (laughs) um so so the reality is as we were saying earlier like um that there are queer folks in our churches. And if, if, uh, if we are not creating space for them to be out and to bring the fullness of who they are into our church space, like what, what are we missing out on in our church spaces? What are we missing out on in our small groups, in our uh, married classes? Like what, what are some of the spa- things that we're missing out on in those spaces? I think when we talk about like what, 
queer Christians offer. And if you, if a church doesn't really allow them to bring their full selves to the community, I think there's, we've talked about a few different things, but one of the big thing that's come to mind is that queer Christians have had to typically do a lot of work around what does their sexuality actually mean Mm -hmm. and healing from a lot of, I think about it as embodied shame. So over the years, if you grew up in a conservative evangelical space, like I did, you spend years and years and years thinking about your desire and your body as sinful and broken. And so I think as I've gone through the process of untangling that and healing from that, I've had to do a lot of work and thinking around what is sexuality actually? How does that play out in my life? How is that embodied? And I think some of that reworking and reintegration is, I would, I would suggest not something that typically a heterosexual Christian does a lot of deep thinking around. And so I think a queer Christian has that to offer in the sense of, I have just by virtue of necessity had to really tease out all the pieces of sexuality. We love David Benner and he talks about sexuality as this life force that like your, your whole experience of showing up fully human is, is part of, of how you, are in the world as a sexual being and then the physical aspects of that. So all of the pieces of trying to like heal from this and understand it, I think that is something that in my experience of conservative evangelicalism, that embodied spirituality was very much, much missing from my experience. And so I think that's one thing that queer Christians really can, can offer just by virtue of the healing process that many of them have had to go through. And by embodied spirituality, are you meaning, breaking down, not having this sort of like dualistic mentality of that there's like physical, spiritual is these two sort of separate things, but but it's like the full embrace of like my actual physical bodily engagement in the world as a part of my spirituality. Right, right. So I think, you know, there's so many different pieces of it. I think we can think about how how gender and sexuality shows up. So like something so simple as for years and years I I have put my hands in my pockets. And I was told over the years, like, don't do that. That's not feminine. Like the way I hold my body, I like to put my hands in my pockets. And now that I'm out and I'm married, I feel a little bit more freedom to just sort of work the range of, of what maybe kind of these gendered behaviors look like kind Mm. of physically, because I'm like, well, if you think I'm queer, okay, that's fine. I'm queer now. You know, it's no problem. Whereas before I felt like that was very taboo. That's one piece of it. I think another piece is I spent so many years sort of thinking about my sexuality and my sexual desire and sort of the physical manifestations of that as very bad that now as I've reworked that and I I really look at my desire and my body differently. I think I have more grace. I have more space for how my body sort of is in the world in unique ways. I feel more connected Mm. and integrated with my physical body than I did before. I think when you think about trauma in the body, that there's that great book that body keeps the score. There's a lot of those pieces of when you heal from trauma, there's this reintegration with your physical body that that happens that I, I feel like it 
shows up in the way I'm in nature. It shows up in the way I like to garden. It shows up in the way I like to work with my hands. It's just much more of an embodied experience of being in the world. And I think sexuality is a part of that. That's really good. That's really good. Um, Lindsay, what have you got? What are some of the things? Yeah. I mean, there's so many, Mike, to be honest, but something that struck me is I think queer Christians, um, especially those of us that are desiring to be in the church and part of the church and to bring our gifts. And I don't, I mean, some of the gifts are just like gifts of leadership or gifts of, you know, being with children or gifts of administration, however we want to view that there's that. But I think when you, I think it's a really radical picture of grace and forgiveness, given the amount of Mm. pain and trauma and marginalization and rejection. And I mean, I think we're using pretty, um, sanitized language here but like again i think you've already made it explicit you can (laughs) (laughs) um but i think like for me there was a i feel like gross and i feel like my attraction is perverted and people are wondering if i can be around children because you know, molestation can have, like, that's what we're talking about here, like, just simply. And so I think to have such a deep desire to know Jesus and to be with his people, I think is, and to be willing to work through that, to remain in relationship and in community, like the sheer fact that, that there are LGBTQ believers at your church is an act of grace. Mm. Um, and a radical commitment to sort of community and and to belonging. Um, And so I I think I remember showing up to my first gay Christian network conference and the profundity of being in a room with 1300 LGBTQ Christians and allies. And, and it was this, I mean, I cried through pretty much every, (laughs) every main session and, and, Part of that was, I think it was just this profound integration of tension and complexity and acknowledgement of of the weightiness of these topics and these questions, coupled with like, Jesus is enough for all of us. And sort of, um, I think that uh, it it was probably... At that point in life, it had been my job to attend a lot of Christian conferences. And and so I think it it was just a unique setting to be in surrounding, wow, like these people know and love God in a way that like I'm humbled to even be in this room. And so as that's brought into the church across all sorts of different types of churches and geography, geographically and you know i think that's a huge gift that it would be easy to take for granted um yeah um gosh i like tearing up as you're sharing here like it um i don't know why it hasn't struck me of the like the level of grace and forgiveness that you have to extend to be in so many of the spaces that you're in with the church Mm -hmm. with other christians um and um yeah there's something really beautiful about that i was just I was thinking about um, we the uh, you guys and um, Allison and I. We went up to a friend of mine's church a while ago. I don't remember how long ago, maybe a year or so ago, and um, and his church is affirming and has um, queer Christians and every layer of leadership in the church, and um, 
and there is a much higher percentage, obviously, of queer Christians in that church than probably in an average church. And I had this moment in the midst of worship where I was just watching this, like, uh, of people who were profoundly moved by worship, wanting to worship. And I was like, gosh, we spent all this time in our church trying to decide whether or not they can be a part of the, and, and here are people who desperately want to follow Christ, who desperately want to be in relationship with Jesus, who desperately want to be a part of a church body. And we're often erecting these walls that are keeping them from that. And there's desperately wanting to be a part of that. And so I was struck by that um, when we were, when we were a part of that worship service together. But now in hearing you kind of share this here, I'm also struck by the amount of grace and forgiveness that it takes for that community to have shown up in that space. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's heavy for me. Thanks. Mm. Thanks, Mike. Um, I was reading the, this book. It has nothing to do with this, but I was just thinking about it as we were talking here. Um Here's this quote that I grabbed from it. It said, we're often tempted to read 1 Corinthians and think of gifts in a limited way. For example, Sally's a preacher and her gift to the body is her preaching, but this is reductionistic. We should instead say that Sally herself and all of her fullness, all of her skills, experiences, and even her inadequacies and brokenness is a gift of God to the church community. God gathers in a place people who together have the gifts and resources needed to embody Christ in the way that that place needs to see Christ embodied. Like it was this really helpful framework for me to think of like gifts, the the gifts of first Corinthians as beyond just this, like you do this thing and you are gifted at leadership and you're gifted at administration and you're, but like you yourself, like Susan, you are a gift and Lindsay, you are a gift and you being a part of the body of Christ is like you bring the fullness of who you are is the gift to the church. Um, yeah. And we need that. Um, yeah. So what, what else, what are some of the other sort of gifts that, that we're missing in the church if we're not fully embracing queer Christians? Yeah. I think one of the things that comes to mind is sort of this idea of embracing mystery and sort of loosening this grip on certainty. So mm. as I spent decades kind of holding on to this idea of I I know what I think about sexuality and started to unpack my own experience of sexuality, I think there was this there's been this question and it's still there like, wow, I th- I think I really have gotten this wrong in some ways. I think the church has kind of gotten this wrong in some ways. What else have we gotten wrong. So it, it opens up this sort of idea of in all the right ways, questioning some of the things we take for granted. So I studied abroad years ago in, in Central America and I was introduced to liberation theology and some of these sort of like other ideas. Um, and that verse from first Corinthians five, test everything, hold on to the good has really stuck mm-hmm. with me in the sense of pushing against some of the things we take for granted in the church. And so I think um, we have this in conservative evangelicalism, this real value of getting it and understanding it and holding on to this certainty. And I don't think that's always good. I look at the person of Jesus and I think he challenged it. He challenged structures and norms of the culture he was in. He brought this sort of nuance and 
kind of finesse in all the right ways to things that people around him held very strongly. And so I think queer Christians can offer that kind of nuanced picture of looking at things in a different way. I think it sensitizes, it sensitized me and us to other marginalized groups and having sort of a posture of softness to this has been our experience. Like what, what are, how are we perpetuating injustice in ways and what, what other groups and and, and issues and injustice have we missed? What Mm. sort of structures in the church of power need to be reworked? And so I think there's this sense of in good ways, opening yourself up to questioning, to mystery, to pushing against long held ideas that can really usher in some new freedom and, and new life in some ways. I think a practical example of that is let's just take gender roles in marriage, right? Um, I think, and I didn't realize this to the degree that I am continually learning and realizing it until we got married. But I think with two women in a relationship, you just don't have the stereotypical male, female here's. And, and so in many ways, that's amazing and exciting. And in other ways, it's like, wait, there's not a roadmap for this yet, especially in Christian circles, like no right. one's written the book on this yet. So what does that look like? And I think the beauty of it, and it's similar to the quote, I think that you just read, Mike, is uh, it frees us up to figure out how we're wired, what we're passionate about, where we're weaker, and, and sort of tailor this to who we are and to what we can bring and to our gaps and and sort of um i think there's and and it also surfaces for me uh, it's really shown me oh gosh here's my default picture that's based on what like so many things we don't even think about we don't question this is like my dad you know raises the money my mom you know mm-hmm. it's like all of it like and and i think what's What's also fascinating within that too is, and Susan shared earlier with like the pocket story, I think there's so much that like we historically, I think masculinity and femininity have been pretty narrow things. And so I think so much of even my own story is, and and sort of the integration Susan talked about earlier, I think as far as the embodied spirituality, I think um, to me, prior to, you know, processing my spirituality, diving deeper into some of this, I was so repressed and cut off from myself. And within that, I think femininity felt like something that was off limits to me. I never felt feminine enough. I, I felt I was a tomboy growing up. I loved sports. Um, and, and I think those things didn't fit with my stereotypical picture of, of what girls love and girly girls and what they do. And, you know, they, even as I talk about it now, and I remember, um, a close friend saying to me at one point, cause I love to wear sweats. You've probably experienced that during COVID, but, um, <laughs> and I thought of sweatpants as a very stereotypically masculine thing. And someone finally sat me down and was like, you're a woman, you like sweats, therefore sweats are feminine because you mm. and you enjoy wearing them. And it yeah, was yeah, yeah. mind boggling paradigm shift of like, wait, you're right. And so I found that the more work like I've done around my sexuality, the more my femininity has, I'm I'm actually far softer than I was kind of 
year in years of repression, I think, and and even now being married to a woman, I think there's so many ways that around the gender role piece, this can all be viewed as feminine because I'm a woman, or the parts of myself that maybe are stereotypically more masculine, um, that's okay too. Like, and and sort of the things that I think are really hills to die on in the gender conversation are far fewer than I think culturally we have space for oftentimes. But I think it takes sort of marginalized voices who have a different experience to bring that conversation to the church, which is another sort of gift that we're talking about. Yeah, I think so. I think even like your very presence does that in some ways. Like I was thinking um, as you were sharing uh about well, I was thinking about a couple of things. Like one is the the idea of of like there's all this conversation around like biblical masculinity and like what actually is that and what is um, culturally imposed ideas that we've just sort of like then layered onto the scriptures and read them into the scriptures and we're forced like just being in relationship with you, being forced to ask those sorts of questions. But like another one came up when we were having breakfast last week that um, we were talking about doing laundry at our house. And Allison and I were talking about that. And you asked, like, well, who typically does that? Like, what does that look like for you guys? And we have, like, I think worked hard to try to figure out an egalitarian relationship and what that means for us. But we also have default postures that um, are really easy for us to just kind of like slide into that just kind of like you just kind of like default into that because that's what we've grown up around. That's what's been normative in some cultural sure. experiences for us, right? And um, and you don't have that the ability to have that same sort of default slide into that. Or if you do, like to use overly stereotypical things, like nobody's changing the light bulbs in your home or whatever, right? Like that that's just not getting done and the kitchen's getting cleaned every day or whatever, right? The, um, and so like you're forced to have to wrestle through those things which just you even asking Allison and I that question then like forces us back into again of like, oh, is this just a default thing or is this what most makes sense for us right now in this season in our relationship? Mm -hmm. And it, like, so it forced us, like it forces those sorts of sorts of things rather than just accepting traditional cultural narratives as to like what gender roles look like in relationships. Right. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I think mm -hmm. even what you're describing requires like just a level of normativity and relationships. I mm. think, I mean, you're making a great case for like, we need to live life together and do brunch and ask random questions about what, you know, like if you're not in relationship with people who are different than you, those things never have opportunity to come up. And so I think it's in the mundane that like really powerful things start to happen that are worth noting yeah yeah that's really good what um what would be your picture of like gosh if the church could look like this so like covid's this great time where i think a lot of churches are getting to in some ways reinvent themselves because they'll have there'll be churches that it's going to be a year before they of like not meeting in person before they meet in person again and so like, there's all these conversations amongst church leaders of like, what do we get to come back to? Because we can like change some things now and things could be a bit different going back because we've had this huge break. Like what would be a couple of things that you'd be like, oh, I wish that this would be, I would, I would love for this to be true 
in the church going forward or in a church experience that I was a part of going forward? Sure. Hmm. Such a good question. Yeah, I think one of the things that we really long for is to be a part of a community as fully humans and a married couple that's not just about our sexuality. So one of the things that was hmm. got really exhausting about our, our last church experience was that whether we liked it or not, we felt like we were sort of holding this banner as this LGBTQ married couple and our sexuality was the predominant thing about us that was either novel or controversial or the thing to talk about. And, and while we embrace our sexuality and feel like that's a big part of who we are, it's not the only part of who we are. I think we have other things that we, we want to bring and we want to be fully human just as other people in the community are. And so I think I look forward to a day where, where we can show up and worship as a married couple and eventually as a family in a way that's a little more integrated, that our sexuality is um, not just accepted or tolerated, but embraced, but it's in the context of us and who we are and our other giftings, as you mentioned. So it's this, it's this part of this larger picture of, of what we bring to our church, our spiritual community. I love that. Um, yeah, I think for me, um, and, and this journey started long, even before I was processing my sexuality, I think I was in, in a learning process around race and ethnicity and marginalization there. And, and I think that the more um, that I learn and the more that my eyes are open, the more I truly believe like Jesus is on the margins. Like mm. Jesus, that is where you find him. Um, and that's where you discover him in new ways. And that's where there's complexity and beauty and nuance. Um, and, and I think people that have done a lot of work around processing pain in any context have such depth and beauty to offer the church and can create so much space. Um, and, and I think, I just think grief is, and knowing how to grieve well and the courage to wade into that is, is I think where we experience Christ most profoundly too. And so um, within that, as I think about what I would want for, for churches and for the church we return to is this, um, very open posture to a power exchange where we center the margins and we allow ourselves to hear, to be shaped by, to be led by those on the margins and, and trust that that is the work of what Jesus is doing. And, and even in that power exchange, that there's incredible redemption for the powerful and the powerless. And that that is sort of the upside down kingdom that Jesus mm -hmm. came and embodied. And so I think to do that in a church context is really difficult. I think it pushes against our norms. And I think that that goes far beyond sexuality and sexual orientation. It extends yeah to race, to ability, to, um, all sorts of different dimensions, I think, and intersections. But I think I, I and even as we're obviously very white, although I guess people can't see us, but we're very white um, <laughs> and, and have been very shaped, I think in many ways by, um, by larger stereotypical white and white supremacy culture. I think I long to be in spaces that are led, um, by people of color just for what 
Jesus has for that in, in, for us and within us. So, Mm -hmm. um, I think that's, that's where it gets exciting. And, um, that's what I long for. Hmm. Hmm. That's really good. Um, I was talking to a friend the other day and, and she's a person of color and she said to me, um, white woke Christians are the worst. (laughs) And, um, and from her vantage point, like, you know, what she was talking about, about her experience as a person of color. And, and anyways, I was, I was kind of wondering what your experience is, because I think that, um, I think that there's a number of people who listen to this, who probably would find themselves in that sort of a, a category, however they sort of define that, but would find themselves in some sort of like, I'm a white woke Christian. And um, would your experience be like, oh gosh, like here's, uh, I just kind of wonder like, what is the like caution that you would offer folks who find themselves in that space? Because it's easy for us to sort of like be like, oh, that conservative Christian sort of crew that is making people feel alienated and marginalized and oppressed, like they're all jacked up and and I'm thinking about things well and things mm-hmm. that are offering liberation and freedom and what, um, what for this group is this group sort of missing and needs some, um, words of encouragement or rebuke towards. That's a great question. And I would, I would just say that's something that we're wrestling with. I mean, we, we find ourselves really interested in, um, ideas of justice. And we've been talking recently about um, Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed and this idea of, he's a a critical theorist, Brazilian educator and philosopher. And I've been reading him um, in my grad school program and Lindsay read the book too. And so we've been thinking a lot about this idea of oppression and when you're a part of the oppressor group, how do you actually make that shift? And so we do, we do a lot of thinking around that, but I think that's different than actually acting in ways Mm -hmm. and areas of injustice in your life. And one thing that comes to mind is a a situation um, that we're, we're navigating currently around racial justice. And we've had to really wrestle with what are we willing to spend socially as far as our capital to land on the right side of an issue or land on the side of, of justice. And that's been mm-hmm. costly for us to, to think through. And so I think it's this challenge of taking it from these compelling, interesting ideas where you can sort of stay in this mental playground to actual situations around us where we would need to stick our necks out and, and actually do some things that uh, would, would, would have some cost attached to it. So I put myself in that same group of, you know, we think about, I think it was um, MLK who said it's the moderates, the moderate whites who are, yeah. are, are the dangerous ones. Um, and so I think we, we think through like, what are the ways we need to be brave and bold and um, not stay in this sort of realm of thinking uh, and actually take some risks yeah, I mean, I think for me, and I want to be really careful because I feel like um, there, it's sexual orientation and that marginalization is so different, especially as a white person, is so different mm, than, than what point. someone is experiencing racially. And mm-hmm. even I think there's so much privilege I have in my sexual orientation of I can disclose that to the degree that I choose to whenever I want. So sure. there's privilege even in that. Yeah, um, yeah. That's not 
not the same. So everything I say is, is with that disclaimer, but I think, um, it's fascinating. So I'm going to use sexual orientation as, as a little bit of that's some of my come from is when you've got straight people that are all passionate and in it and wanting to advocate on your behalf. Um, I think there's a lot of nuances around how much of this is about me and you're like, you're really elevating me and my voice versus this is really about you and who you want to be and how you want to be viewed and, and even your own fragility of how you don't want to be viewed. And, and I think, also, on the flip side of that coin, there's just a lot of nuance around. Um, I still, with some of my most woke straight people, let's just say, I don't know if I can even say that, but like there are still <laughs> painful moments that happen just because unless it's your lived experience, there's just nuances you're not going to get. So, for example, we had a pastor recently send us an email expressing wanting and best of intentions, wanting to care for us in our marriage, but it only went to Susan. Um, and because of our whole context and history of like our marriage being erased in various Christian contexts we go into, that can feel, it can, it's just a minor like twinge that happens to me. That's like, Oh, it, it felt painful to not be explicitly included on that email, to have that only go to Susan. Yeah. And that was not his heart. It was not his intention. Like he, he was great. Um, and I, the moment for me was like, yeah, there's just ways that no matter how aware you are, you're gonna, you're gonna F it up in different moments and you're gonna There's going to be painful moments. And, and so I think when I translate that for myself into sort of a, a justice and race context, it's this wanting to constantly have the humility of like, I, there's so much I'm just not going to know because this isn't my lived story. Mm. And there's so many painful nuances to this. And the minute that I think I know is when it gets dangerous. And so, um, yeah, I think that's, it's hard to hold on to that. I think the more I learn, the more I want to feel like I'm woke. And yet I think holding on to like that is, that's where you start doing real damage. Um, and so I think even, like, what is my aspiration at the end of this? Is it to be woke or is it to love people well? And how do I continue to, like, um, keep the main thing, sort of the main thing, and invite people to be honest with me when I when I miss the boat while also doing my own learning so they don't have the weight of education on them? Like, that's really my responsibility. So it's super complex, but I agree, I think... It's about questioning the motives of people that need to be and feel woke, like what's going on there. Yeah. Um, and I think that's often what makes makes us damaging when we get in that space. That's really good. That's really good. Um, well, I I think like sometime we're gonna have to like do this again and talk about things that move beyond just even we just started getting into it beyond uh LGBTQ Christians in the church because you have so much to offer, obviously, beyond just uh, a conversation around sexuality. Um, yeah, and I just wanted to tell the two of you as we kind of like close this up, like you two have been a gift to Allison and I. Like we're so grateful for your friendship. We love getting to hang out with you. And um, you challenge us and make us think in ways that are just really helpful. And um, and I'm I'm really grateful for you. So I'm grateful that you'd spend time on this with me today and I'm grateful for your friendship in my life. 
Thanks for having us, Mike. This is really fun. Yeah, really mutual. We love you guys too. Thanks. Thanks. Well, everyone, thanks again for listening to another episode of Mike's podcast. I hope that this was um, thoughtful for you, challenging, got you um, thinking, got you um, just kind of stirred up maybe in some new ways. Hey, um, I wanted to let you all know uh, about something I've got going on for kind of the rest of this year, actually going into next year as well. One of the one of the things that I have been working on since I left my position at the church that I was a part of um, a little over a year ago now is that I've, I've just gotten a chance to get to start doing some work with the post-evangelical church. And uh, if you listen to the David Gushy podcast, you started to get a little bit of a flavor of some ideas that are starting to to take hold in this space that that isn't what would be typically considered progressive or liberal Christianity, but doesn't fit within what has been the sort of evangelical box anymore. And um, and I'm going to have some of those leaders on here at some point to talk about some of the like really interesting things that their churches are doing. But one of the things I've been giving myself to is to try and help connect and catalyze and resource the post-evangelical church. And one of the things that's become apparent is that that requires more of my time than I've been able to give to it. So one of the things that I've been doing because of the generosity of several people is is raising some funds to sort of help supplement my salary so that the, for the next two years that I could give at least half of my time towards helping resource catalyze and connect the post-evangelical church. Um, so if that's something that that you're like, hey, I, I just appreciate the work that, that you do, Mike, or or I'm really interested in this sort of like other church space and seeing something happen there, um, I would love to just chat with you about what that might look like if you would want to help out with that with a year-end gift, or if you'd want to like just contribute over the next year on some sort of like small ongoing basis, whatever that might look like. I'd love to have a conversation with you. So you can send me an email at mike at mikegoldsworthy.com. That's the easiest way to get a hold of me. Um, there's no pressure or anything. I, um, will continue to put these things out regardless of whether anyone gives to that or not. I just wanted to, I know I have gotten asked by, um, by some people of like, Hey, how can we be helpful for you in this sort of like next season? How can we help you do the things that you're called to do? And so if that's something you'd want to be a part of, I'd love to have you be a part of it. But otherwise, other than that, um, I look forward to having you here next time on Mike's podcast. Thanks, everybody.